in saying that jazz is like an ecosystem that foregrounds the bidirectional nonlinear relations between different components and makes hazier other aspects of jazz that might also be interesting. But in both cases, you have this really interesting nesting of timescales. I think you were hinting at that a bit with your discussion of mass extinctions, where one thing that a mass extinction does is it resets the accumulation of timescales. It resets that lamination of deep history, moderate history, recent history, and all of a sudden you get you know these generalists because you don't have these wonderful arroyos that have been laid out by the long history of the ecosystem. And you definitely do have that in jazz, even in free jazz. So yes, in free jazz, they don't have a written out score that they're riffing on, but there is a long history of practice and norms that all of these players have internalized. You can't just get a bunch of random musicians together and be like, play. There's a genre, there's a set of expectations, and those have a history. And what I think is really powerful about this ecological metaphor is it sheds light on those multiple timescales. Whether in an ecosystem, an economy, a jazz ensemble, or a lone scholar thinking through a problem, critical transitions, breakdowns, and breakthroughs appear to follow universal patterns. Creative leaps that take place in how mathematicians think out loud with body chalk and board look much like changes in the movement through music space traced by groups of improvisers. Society itself appears to have an aha moment when a meme goes viral or a new word emerges in the popular vocabulary. How do collectives at all scales, be they neurons, research groups, or a society at large, suddenly change shape? And what early warning signs portend a pending bolt of inspiration? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we talked to SFI fellow Tyler Margitis of UC Merced about regimes and ruptures across timescales, from the frustration and creativity of mathematicians and musicians to the bursts of innovation that appear to punctuate civilization and the biosphere alike. Speaking of creative bursts and breakthroughs, please excuse us for getting this episode out weeks later than scheduled. My second child came sooner than expected last month, and our communications office has been busy dealing with knock-on effects. If you value our research and communications efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcastgive. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Tyler. Michael. Welcome to Complexity Podcast. Hey, such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I think I've been chasing you for what, two years now or something like that? Uh, yeah, and I haven't been running away. Uh, <laughs> it's felt more like a dance than a chase. So I'm very happy to be here. 
Fair. Yes. Actually, that's funny because, you know, that's one of those uh, Lakoff and Johnson metaphors we live by, you know, is love war? Is love a dance? It's a journey. It's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah. Yeah. So we're on a journey together. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, consequently, this journey will be one in which I'm constantly exposing my own implicit cognitive biases just in the way that I speak and gesture through our conversation. Great. Together. Things I think about a lot. So yes. Perfect. <laughs> and so for anyone who can't see my hands are doing this and Tyler's hands are down here. All right. Well, anyway, uh, the first one I want to talk with you about was a piece that you presented on briefly in last year's working group on complex structures in musicology. The, right. This piece on creative leaps in musical ecosystems, early warning signals of critical transitions in professional jazz, which honestly is kind of like a drinking bingo victory for me with like all of the possible... <laughs> You know, like, how did you manage to fit all of this interesting stuff into one one paper? This is uh, Matt Setzler and uh, Minjay Kim yeah. that you wrote this with. And uh, why don't you kick us... Actually, you know what? What am I doing? We need to go back a little bit here. Sure. Uh, we need to loop back and give people a little bit of biographical stuff so, okay. that, so people c get a sense for who you are and uh, how you became a complex systems researcher and ended up at SFI. and. And why it is that you're animated to study the kinds of things that you're studying here. So, yeah, a little bit of backstory, please. Yeah, it's, it's been a circuitous route. I was not an early acolyte, uh, although maybe sort of an early fanboy of complex systems and the Santa Fe Institute. You know, in my earliest days, most of my time was taken up with sport. I was a competitive gymnast as a young kid and then fell in love with Olympic-style wrestling. And that consumed my life really from my early teens well into my 20s and was also a gateway for me to see the world. I was the alternate for the Olympics, uh, traveled all over the world representing Canada. I'm from Montreal, Canada, and just had a fantastic time pursuing this strange form of excellence, which is friendly combat. And as I was wrapping up uh, that particular journey and trying to figure out what I want to do next, I had this inflection point where I had to decide, you know, I was retiring at the ripe old age of 25, knees sore, ears malformed from years of wrestling, you know, what comes next? And a couple of things were happening at that point. One, I was moving away from sport and really wanted to finally try to make a go at it as a scientist. I'd always dreamed of being a scientist, but... Uh, you know, just I didn't have scientific role models in my immediate life. It really felt like a stretch. Uh, the other thing that happened was, you know, in my mid-20s, I realized I was gay and had to go from dating women to sort of inhabiting this whole new social identity. So I experienced a number of like pretty severe ruptures of, you know, in my social sexual identity. I came out to my family. They were like, oh, my God. And then my professional identity from basically a pro athlete, you know, I was funded by the Canadian government to some kind of scientist. I didn't quite know what kind of scientist to become next. And then I discovered cognitive science, which for me brought together all these different things I was interested in, the brain, language, culture, interaction, and this kind of beautiful systems, complex systems-y perspective on all of those in one community of research practice. And so that brought me from Montreal, Canada to San Diego, California, all the way across the continent to do my PhD in cognitive science. 
And while I was doing that, I always had my eye on this world of complexity science, of complex systems, because that was really the perspective that I felt fit most naturally with my own intellectual inclinations. And so after, you know, getting fully certified as a uh, doctor of cognitive science, it was really a dream to end up here at the Santa Fe Institute, where I could finally let my complex systems freak flag fly <laughs> and didn't have to pretend that I was just your run of the mill cognitive scientist interested in, you know, individual psychology, but I could be completely transparent about the fact that the issues that animated me were really issues that go beyond the individual that even go beyond the human and are really questions about complex human social systems more generally. And that's been my joy since being here. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people come out of the closet as interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. Totally. Yeah, yeah totally. That, that kind of thing. And it's a relief. And you see people's bodies relaxing in the same way that, you know, in my own experience of coming out as queer, you know, all of a sudden I slept better. I feel like I was taller. <laughs> you know, like you know, your, whole, your whole embodiment changes and you see scientists come in sort of slinking into the Santa Fe Institute and they're like, well, I guess I'm a physicist, but really I'm, or, you know, I officially am a sociologist, but really I'm. And they finally just have that freedom to be themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was funny. I was on the other end of the spectrum. I was just talking to a friend who is considering quitting her PhD program at a rather esteemed university because she came into it with a real clear, strong sense of how freaky she was and how big the questions she had yeah. really are. And that she's been suffering a, uh, what she acknowledges must be some kind of psychosomatic stress-related chronic disorder now two years into her PhD. And she's like, I think I have to quit in order to get my health back. Uh, so, I mean, clearly this is not what I expected to talk about today, but I do think that, I do think that insofar as your work explores the relationship between the way that we think about things, the way we talk about things, the way we enact them in our environments, in our bodies, I suspect we're going to keep bumping into this fundamental relationship or uh, perhaps even kind of like non-duality, if I may, between the way that we are in our heads and the way that we're allowed to express ourselves and the effects that it has on the way that we relate to one another. So now that you wrestle ideas, yeah. right, instead of people, why don't we wrestle this this piece sure. on jazz and on the application of an ecosystemic metaphor to what's going on in jazz and the kind of uh, collective cognitive activity that we see on display in improvisational ensembles. So talk a little bit about the inspiration for this piece and why throughout this piece you continue to articulate these questions in a way that makes it seem like you're pushing a kind of daring proposal, which is that this analogy actually holds and that it's not as uh, ridiculous as it may seem to some people. Yeah. First of all, the inspiration is that I like doing science with friends. And Matt Setzler, my co-author of that paper, is a buddy and a wonderful cognitive scientist, as well as a wonderful composer and jazz saxophonist. So that's part of the motivation. But really, the, the bigger motivation is that I have a couple recurring puzzles, mysteries, that I sort of carry with me throughout my research. And those include things like, why do we get stuck in ruts in our thinking, in our activity? 
How do we break out of those? And also, as you've been hinting at, what's the role of the body, sort of our fleshiness in those ruts and those ruptures, right? So that's why a lot of my early work was on mathematics, because that's a place where people get really stuck in their ways. And then all of a sudden, someone has a breakthrough, there's a new proof, and they radically reconfigure their understanding. And those issues really show up in a fun way in improvised jazz on this wonderful short time scale that makes it much easier to study. So in free improvised jazz, there isn't a notated score that is brought into the performance. Most of the playing emerges spontaneously out of what the musicians are doing with each other. They're riffing off each other. They're in conversation. They're coupled. They're decoupled. And out of that, you know, initial cacophony, you get sometimes really interesting sounds. And those sounds stick around for a while. They become entrenched, maybe for a minute, two minutes, three minutes. They settle into a rut, or another word that I use is they settle into a regime or a sound world. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, they completely reconfigure what they're doing and they end up somewhere else. And so for me, this was like a prototypical example of this recurring tension that I see throughout the human experience between these really, really stable ruts or regimes that we get into and these moments of sudden radical reconfiguration. And so jazz was the perfect case study and also a heck of a lot of fun because jazz musicians in general are just more fun to study than video of mathematicians working on proofs at a blackboard. I love mathematicians, but video data of mathematicians less exciting than smoky basement jazz club video. <laughs> so, yeah, so reading this paper for me, looming over my reading of this paper was the conversation I had recently with Deborah Gordon at Stanford, you know, who studies distributed computation and ant colonies. And she makes the point that contrary to the way that we were thinking about ants, maybe a few decades ago, it's very much like a jazz ensemble, you know, that the roles are mutable, that there is no score in like, you know, that we were bringing this kind of managerial mindset or a classical symphonic mindset to the study of these systems that figure things out in a very ad hoc kind of way. And, you know, consequently, you know, it's like, yeah, there's no manager. Like the queen is not telling people what to do. I, I do want to circle back to the question of jazz and that particular mode of distributed cognition and its relationship to these other kinds and like the ecological influence that might lead to one strategy over another strategy because what we regard as improvisation might be kind of the same thing that we're seeing going on with composition but at a different time scale or, or spatial scale but that's all sort of a meta on this paper and we we, we have a responsibility <laughs> to actually talk about this before we leap into that so it seems like the place to start here would be in the precedent set by people like SFI external professor Martin Sheffer talking about what is actually going on at these thresholds or these these transitional moments and how it is that we can identify the features that we can look for to anticipate them. So like setting a little bit of a, you know, laying out some of the core concepts there and then how you and your co-authors uh, sought to identify the features in the music that you were examining that would allow you to kind of quantify all of this. Totally. Yeah. So Martin Sheffer is an ecologist 
And he, along with a number of different ecologists, have been trying to identify generic early warning signals that an ecosystem is about to undergo some kind of critical transition, right? So you can imagine a lake that goes from a really healthy, thriving, clear-watered state to one where all the fish die off and you get a sudden catastrophic algal bloom. Can we know that that's about to happen? And uh, what those really clever ecologists have done is taken some technical tools that were originally introduced in statistical mechanics, sort of physics broadly, looking at when we can predict phase transitions. And the idea is that when a system is perched on the edge of one of these transitions, it's lost resilience in some way. And one way that you can test for that is you can poke the system. So imagine the lake example. You go in and maybe you kill off a bunch of the fish or you add a whole bunch more and you see how rapidly the system is able to bounce back, to return to its you know, healthy, happy functioning state. And if you sort of measure that return time, the time it takes for the system to bounce back after you poke it, that gives you a good sense of how resilient the system is. You want it to sort of really rapidly be like, okay, you poked me, but I'm back, I'm back to usual. Now, in a lot of systems that we want to study, we don't have the ability to go in practically and poke them. It would be irresponsible to poke a lot of like big, healthy, functioning ecosystems. And so what you can do instead is you just let the system sort of work on its own, so sort of like living out its life, and you look at the noise structure of the system. As it bounces up and down, just on the basis of natural noise in the system, there are, it turns out, some recurring measures that you can calculate that tell you how resilient the system is. So you can look at autocorrelation or variance or flickering. These are sort of technical terms for different calculations you can do that can give you an idea of how quickly the system forgets these pokes, these prods, and returns to its natural resting state. Now, my idea was that these measures of resilience might work just as well in the, quote, ecosystem of jazz improvisation, right? So really drawing on this ecosystem metaphor, when really that's sort of a way of speaking. What I want to say there is that in jazz improvisation, you have multiple elements that are interacting with each other in a distributed way. And I could have called that an ecosystem or an economy or, you know, just flat out called it a complex system. But the idea is that in these kinds of systems where you have distributed elements interacting in nonlinear ways, you can sometimes foresee this loss of resilience that precedes a sudden catastrophic critical transition. And so we set out to try to use the tools that had been deployed so well by folks like Martin Sheffer and others for natural ecosystems to see if they would work just as well for this human, social, cultural, technical jazz ecosystem. Now, if I'm understanding this correctly, one of the main differences between this sort of experimental poking of a forest or yeah. whatever, and what you're, you're describing here is the difference between exogenous and endogenous disruption, right? Yeah. So in a way that strikes me that this is more similar to, say, a model of technological innovation, where it has to do with the relationships between the members of the ensemble, rather than, say a heckler in the audience 
And although there are great videos of Jacob Collier responding to people whose phone goes off during a concert oh, or whatever. And incorporates it into the play. Yeah, and he like he manages to just stay on the rail while acknowledging that that's happened in a really clever way. Yeah, so I would like to talk a little bit more about the two factors that you're looking at here, increased variability and lagged autocorrelation. Sure. So this is a whole lot clearer to me looking at the figures yeah. in this paper where you know, you've managed to put this musical data through a series of transforms so that you can kind of see the four members of this jazz ensemble and uh, see in a, in a really stripped down low dimensional way kind of how they're relating to one another. But uh, yeah, unpack that a little, please. Sure. I mean, so the, the tactic we took was to transform the music they were producing into a trajectory through this high dimensional space of sound, right? So now instead of just having audio that we're dealing with, we've transformed the performance into kind of like a journey through space. So they start off in one corner, they maybe bounce around there for a bit. And then by the end of the performance, they might be in an entirely different corner of this high dimensional. We can imagine, you know, just picture a room, right? So you walk in by the door, they're hanging up by the door a bit. Then they go over to the corner, they're sitting on the couch. And by they, I mean the sound they're producing. Once we've done that, all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of mathematical tools. Because instead of just a bunch of sounds that we're sort of uh, subjectively appreciating, we have a trajectory, a mathematical uh, expression of what they're doing. And the idea with increased variability, like autocorrelation, is that you can look at how that trajectory through musical space is behaving and whether it's highly stable, so very low variability, they're basically just doing something very, very similar over and over again, or highly variable. So even though they might be staying in the same region of sound space, they're actually more and more sort of diving out and then coming back. They're playing something that sounds really different and then returning to the thing they were doing before. And then that mathematically looks like increased variability in this trajectory through this sound space. And it strikes me that that's at least geometrically similar to what you see, again, in like ant foraging, how, you know, they'll, they'll loop out exploring for new resources and then somebody will find something and then the whole nest sort of changes direction. At that point, all the other ants follow. And having organized a group improvisational exercises in my past life in Austin, you feel that. And like you can tell people are getting kind of bored. Yeah, yeah. And then they start testing things and then everyone notices and and latches on to something totally um, but it, you know it, it's curious because in this piece you kind of suggest that we don't expect to observe this kind of thing in composed scripted music yeah. and yet when we look at like the harmonic structure as we move through a piece of music be it classical you know this whole build and release you know something becoming more and more dissonant before it kind of condenses into a new form or in electronic dance music there's the build up and the drop yeah and so i'm curious if those seem substantively different to you than what you're observing in the ensemble or it's not merely a structure that we observe in kind of like real-time improvisational collaboration but it has something to do with like the way that we process information and the way that we organize narrative structure and yeah. in, in the way that we move through various spaces at whatever time scale. 
Totally. Yeah, and so I think in the composed case, you're completely right that composed music is playing off a set of expectations, of cognitive responses that we're likely to have. And insofar as we may have evolved to be sensitive to this kind of loss of resilience in a system before an exciting critical transition, it's entirely possible that composers, maybe even unconsciously, have been building in these kinds of signals into their music as a way of communicating to the listener that something is about to approach. On the other hand, I don't think we would see the same kind of loss of resilience in composed music that we see in jazz at the microstructural level, which is really where we see it with jazz. We see it breaking down on the millisecond to millisecond level, where all of a sudden what's happening in the present moment is much more tied to what they were doing a second ago. This is lagged autocorrelation. This is memory. So the system is building up a memory of what it was doing before, it's taking longer and longer return to its happy spot, right? It's the sort of that natural attractor. And I don't think we would see that with Compose. But I want to circle back to your point about the ant going out and exploring. because that, I think that's also really interesting. And there, a lot of folks would describe that as a trade-off between explore and exploit. So a lot of systems engage in, and by systems I mean, say, like a foraging animal will find a patch of food and then it's, you know, chowing down. It's a buffet. It's super happy. But it needs to make a decision. How long does it stay there? As the food begins to run out, when's the optimal moment to be like, okay, this is great, but I'm running out soon. I should probably find the next berry bush or whatever. So when it's hanging out and just eating, that's the exploit phase. It's exploiting the food. And then the explore phase is when it goes out, which is costly, right? They have to move through space. There's a metabolic cost. That's been studied a lot by biologists and ecologists, right? Whether foraging actually lives up to the optimal trade-off between exploiting a food source and exploring for a new one. We could ask whether musicians do the same thing, or storytellers, or mathematicians. There's a similar trade-off that the ant colony needs to make between exploiting where it is right there, right? Sort of these collective free jazz musicians really riffing on a particular sound world and being like, this is fun, and then deciding, okay, when is it not paying the same dividends that it was before? When should I begin to explore some other region of the sound space? When should the little ant go out and start exploring somewhere else? And you brought up boredom, which I think is something that's really interesting about human social systems that you don't necessarily have with natural ecosystems. So in a natural ecosystem that can exhibit these kinds of critical transitions, this critical slowing down, which is what you see before uh, with this loss of resilience, you don't have individual fish who are like, okay, we've been in this particular ecosystem stable state. We've been in this basin of attraction. I'm bored. I really want something exciting. I would love like a mass die off and a bloom <laughs> of it. Like that sounds way more fun. That doesn't happen. You don't have individual components that have a meta image of the entire system and goals and aspirations for what that system should do. You do have that with jazz musicians, where the individual isn't just sort of riffing on its own and unthinkingly coupling with the other players. They have a vision. And if the system has been stabilized in area for too long, they can get bored because they're interested in more than just maintaining their local dynamics in some sort of stable way. They're also trying to impress an audience. They're also trying to be interesting. And that's what makes human social complex systems so interesting is that you often have 
these local representations within the individual, within a book, within a play, of the collective, of the society, of the performance. And that sort of multi-scale structure where the local parts end up representing what they aspire the whole system to do is something that I think is really unique to um, human social systems. Oh, good. We just walked right up the ladder to the sort of meta that I wanted to ask. Great, let's do the meta. Yeah, about I know this. You, you love the meta, Michael, <laughs> uh, so I'm not surprised that we're here. It's true. So, you know, thinking about jazz as a strategy, this with one of our undergraduate researchers uh, with Abby, yeah. about, you know, she wants to study a music project, and I was suggesting looking into the composition and improvisation and kind of an evolutionary dynamics thing. So, insofar as you know, any anatomy or technology is an adaptation, is a response to a, a given environment and therefore kind of a hypothesis or embodied model of the world, right? Jazz is saying something about the world that it merged into and emerged mm-hmm. through. Yeah. And certainly, uh, you know, many people have said very eloquently that jazz, as we understand it in the United States, emerged as a response to the trauma of the world wars and a challenge presented by industrialized warfare to the model of the world that we had, the linear narrative of the progress of modernity. And so when we talked with uh, Lawrence Gonzalez on the show about his book, Surviving Survival and on trauma, the relationship between trauma and creativity, yeah, you know, the fact that jazz musicians are playing off a score and are responding at this whole other time scale to these minute variations in the environment seems like it's symptomatic of the fact that we had to throw the script away, you know, that suddenly Wagner looks like a Nazi, yeah. you know, that like, I mean, cause he was, you know, cause, yeah. <laughs> but, but like when I spoke with David Krakauer about mass extinctions and market crashes in episode 29, and we talked about how a high beta trading strategy, you know, this more like exploratory mode of investing and how that's related to in mass extinctions, you see this mature ecosystem with like dinosaurs and other megafauna, you know, very narrowly specified symbiotic relationships. And then all of that comes crashing down. And what survives are generalists that are actually horribly inefficient Mm -hmm. in one of those systems, you know, that you in a mature ecosystem, be it ecological or cultural, you find a lot of specialists. But then as the unpredictability of the environment goes up and up and up, then suddenly that inefficiency pays off. Yeah. So it's specifically like, you know, free jazz is like this very narrow subset of jazz and you address that in this paper. But, you know, I'm just curious what you think about all that, because I'm inclined to push for an even deeper embrace of this analogy than you seem to in the paper. And like, in particular, you know, the way that, you know, you just said, as you say in this paper, that, uh, you know, one difference between humans and nature, as we're talking about them here, is that we don't have these centralized transitions in nature. And yet, here we are in the Anthropocene, where you have mega billionaires that are capable of like leaving an impact on the geological record. And And that's like the ultimate invasive species. And like, I don't know, it it does seem to blend together for me in a different way. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I won't argue with you about that. I mean, I think there are a ton of really productive analogies between these. I do think it's funny to look at the history of everyone's favorite analogy. There's been a bit of a discussion within the Institute over the last week about this 
recurring phrase, you know, everything as a blank. Talk about the meme. Totally, yes. So, yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, and this was a meme that was contrasting uh, Aaron Closet, which external faculty at SFI, with Chris Moore, faculty in residence. And I, I think Chris Moore was saying, nothing is a network. And Aaron Closet was saying, everything is a network or vice versa. I yeah, they were both misquoted regardless. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that prompted this fun internal reflection about this long history of everything as a blank statements. And so there was a period where people were saying, you know, everything as an ecosystem. And I think I'm part of that tradition in saying that, you know, a jazz ensemble is an ecosystem. But prior to that, there was everything is an economy. And who knows what the next metaphor is going to be. And so if I resist sort of a too strong identification between jazz and natural ecosystems, it's only because I recognize that our favorite model system is going to change. And like with any metaphor, certain things become clearer and other things become cloudier. And so in saying that jazz is like an ecosystem or is an ecosystem, that foregrounds the bidirectional nonlinear relations between different components and probably makes hazier other aspects of jazz that might also be interesting. But you're right that in both cases, you have this really interesting nesting of timescales. I think you were hinting at that a bit with your discussion of mass extinctions, where one thing that a mass extinction does is it resets the accumulation of timescales. It resets that lamination of deep history, moderate history, recent history, and all of a sudden you get you know these generalists because you don't have these wonderful arroyos, these wonderful riverbeds that have been laid out by the long history of the ecosystem. And you definitely do have that in jazz, even in free jazz. So yes, in free jazz, they don't have a written out score that they're riffing on, but there is a long history of practice and norms that all of these players have internalized. You can't just get a bunch of random musicians together and be like, play. There's a genre, there's a set of expectations, and those have a history. And what I think is really powerful about this ecological metaphor is it sheds light on those multiple timescales. So we have the micro timescale of the saxophonist picking up on small little variations in how the drummer is playing. Then you have like a meso timescale of the you know hopes and aspirations of these players for what they want to do within a piece and then within a gig and then also a lifetime of training and then also a cultural historical time scale of how those norms developed and in that paper we really focus on the micro time scale but i think there's a really interesting story to be told about similar critical transitions in aesthetic regimes over the long historical time scale of music and what really excites me is of finding generic mechanisms that apply equally to the micro time scale of the millisecond to millisecond variation in play, as well as to the longer socio-historical timescale of, as you said, this sudden visceral response to the horrors of the world wars that gave rise to something like jazz, which itself is like a critical transition in the history of music, uh, but on a very different scale. Yeah, so this is great because now we're getting into a conversation I've been, I guess, prosecuting on social media, (laughs) which is about this phrase, the death of the genre. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, if I call back to the conversation I had with Jeffrey West in 35 and 36 and, you know, this 
ominous graph that he draws of the finite time singularity where you know uh, innovation precipitates it's a crisis that is then solved by innovation which resets the crisis clock but now the clock is moving faster right and we just keep doing this over and over in this like super exponential curve of delayed disaster and this is you know much like uh simon levin just co-authored a piece in uh, PNAS on using evolutionary models for financial markets. And they were talking about a very similar thing in innovation and finance where, you know, we now have these high frequency trading algorithms and, you know, the flash crashes that they induce. Things are moving at such a pace that it sort of defeats our ability to even adequately model them, Mm. which sounds a lot to me like what people are getting at when they say the pace of recombinant change now in a global musical context, you know, where everyone is exposed to everything and it's remixing constantly doesn't afford the kind of, you know, subcultural insulation that allows for stable genre categories. And it looks more like horizontal gene transfer among bacteria than it does the kind of stable eukaryotic inheritance of Darwinian evolution as kind of commonly conceived. So I guess what I'm getting at is like, it seems like to some degree, free jazz has been like released into the water supply. Mm. And I'm curious where you might push against that or, you know, to what extent you think that that holds that we're kind of at a point now where in spite of the fact that yes, free jazz is a genre yeah that the notion of genre now has to be bounded or constrained or contextualized in a certain way to even mean something and you know what that means in terms of the fact that we're actually inside one of these critical transitions that your paper models that you know the critical slowdown is happening all around us i am not a historian of music and so i will speak softly (laughs) Um, But two things. One, all of the examples you just gave were of catastrophic negative transitions. And I think it's important to remember that often these critical transitions are beautiful and transformative and elevating. So think of, you know, a great artistic breakthrough that suddenly leads to a period of great productivity or, you know, a mathematical insight or two people falling in love, right? These are all examples of critical transitions that are really quite fantastic. And I think on the surface can be modeled in really similar ways to Jeffrey West's singularity, these kinds of, you know, horrific market disasters. But I think it's, it's important to remember that they're all so are really fantastic, beautiful, critical transitions. Honestly, I don't mind the death of the genre if it means that we get, you know, as long as as long as we have algorithms to recommend me music, so I don't have to try to like figure out in a record store where to go for what I want now. Totally, it's like there's more excellent music now than there ever was. Yep, you know. So yeah, the other thing I'll say is that in a jazz performance, uh, you don't have pieces that last two seconds, and you don't have pieces that last four days. They seem to fall within this range of two to. 40 minutes, you know, if you're really sort of riffing hard. Likewise, with things like genres or other cultural objects, the granularity, the scale of those objects emerges from the cultural system. And that can change. And so when we talk about the death of genre, I think we're actually talking about a change in natural scale. The scale of the cultural system has changed so that the right way of course creating people's cultural productivity is no longer the scale that we're used to from our younger years, where, you know, we we sort of had an expectation about the right way to slice up cultural space. 
I think it's changed. I don't think there are no longer natural emergent divisions, aesthetic preferences, clusters of interest. Those still are there, absolutely. They're just on a slightly different scale than we're used to. And, you know, that's a little uncomfortable because we're used to knowing the right scale to look at to pick out the genre that we like. And it's changed. And uh, I think that's fun. And I think my bet is that if you jumped in your, you know, cryogenic freeze machine, froze yourself, came back in 100 years, people are still going to be talking about genres, but they're just going to be on a scale that's unrecognizable to you or to me. And I think we're in that process of shifting temporality, of shifting scale at which we experience, produce, and sort of classify artistic products generally, but especially music. Yeah, I mean, that really strikes me as akin to the work that David Krakauer did on the evolution of syntax back in the day, Mm -hmm. you know, and that like, if we are looking at this recombinant creative explosion, I mean, it's in response to the, there is a kind of a gear shift here, you know, like a shift in the relevant scale that looks a lot like the shift from, you know, trying to remember every word that humans have right. to remembering a few rules and a few words and like knowing how to put them together in a more interesting way. Yep. And then at that point we can specialize because then your group over there can have words that I don't need and so on. And yeah. So, but then again, like at that point, who's doing the sorting Yeah. and we cannot expect anyone to actually know all of the different highly granular genres that were created by the downward causal pressure or whatever of of this new domain. Anyway, I don't know. That could be word salad. (laughs) We're at a pretty good point where we can get into this other paper, which we're only going to do the two. Great. I'm happy to not talk about my entire publication history. So I feel like two two is appropriate for one podcast. Yeah. Yeah, So so this one you led with uh, Kate Sampson and Dave Landy, uh, the complex system of mathematical creativity, modularity, burstiness, and the network structure of how experts use inscriptions. And this rhymes in an interesting way with the jazz piece, right? Because you're looking at how people are thinking out loud. Yeah. Or rather, you know, like in a a visual way, equations on a chalkboard. You're coding and examining video. But this is largely about zooming out from the jazz ensemble that might be going on in someone's brain. Totally. And then looking at how that creates a network of symbols on a blackboard and then how that person's writing and attention moves around in that network. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I've just spoiled the whole thing. Great. Yeah. Yeah. There's a punchline. There's a punchline. Well, okay. I will say in a fundamental way, this harkens back to a comment that you made at the top about the role of our bodies in thought. And that's been a real through line of a lot of my work dating back to my PhD days, which is that even if you look at the most rarefied abstract forms of human reflection, you find that the body is there front and center. And this is especially true in mathematics, right? The received vision that we have of mathematics is that it's pure rationality, detached from our fleshy emotional bodies, right? Who do we think of when we think of, you know, the sort of outer reaches of mathematical reasoning? It's like Stephen Hawking, a person who in many ways did not have access to his body as a tool for thought. And so the fact that that is a prototypical image of mathematical reasoning says something about our received cultural pictures of how math works. 
But if you actually go out and look at how math is done, it turns out it is par excellence an example of manual labor. <laughs> Right? It's the most manual of all the labors. Years ago, I saw this ad for a government retraining program, and it said something like, in the future, there will be no manual labor. But the picture was of a computer programming typing with his hands. Right? <laughs> it's like, let's not forget what manual labor means. It means working with your hands. And there's such a cultural judgment associated with using our bodies for labor in general, right? We value white collar workers who don't sweat, who don't use their bodies in our cultural vision. Yeah, they don't go to jail. Right? Right. Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So that, but that's sort of the cultural image. And so we forget that, you know, whenever we're doing something, we're doing with our bodies, right? We're biological organisms. And that's true no less of mathematics. What does math look like? It almost never looks like Stephen Hawking sitting in isolation in his chair. It looks like often a small group of people scribbling away at a blackboard or whiteboard or here at the Institute on our windows with markers. And we're being our usual fleshy mammalian selves. And even in the case of Stephen Hawking, there's this wonderful ethnography of Stephen Hawking by the sociologist Helene Mielet, who looks at how Stephen Hawking is able to do mathematics at all. And it turns out he does it by relying on the bodies of other people, of his students. So Stephen Hawking would recruit a new student every year and would give them these short commands that would guide how they should scribble draw diagrams, write out equations on the blackboard, and he would sit back and inspect what they were doing. So he didn't have access to his own body to do mathematics, so he had to recruit the body of another. So that realization that our bodies are core part of even the most abstract thought, even the most arcane regions of mathematical reasoning, has really motivated a lot of my work, and a lot of my research has been trying to quantify what exactly our bodies are doing in this, you know, quote-unquote, abstract realm of thought. And that's what we're trying to do in this paper. We're trying to use the tools of complexity science to quantify the use of people's bodies as they were working on fairly tricky proofs. These were math experts, you know, most of them were finishing up a PhD or on their route to a PhD in mathematics. And again, adopting this ecological metaphor, we were trying to figure out what happens within the natural ecosystem of mathematical reasoning, which is, you know, one or more bodies at a blackboard where they're scribbling and erasing and pointing and looking and talking and doing all the things that are part of the canonical mathematical situation. Yes. So the thinking in space, right? That's a big piece. Actually, there's several of your other papers get at this and your work with Nunez, right? Like you did your PhD study. Yeah. With Rafael Nunez. Yeah. So yeah. Where mathematics comes from really interesting, cool book. If folks want to dig more deeply into that, but like, you know, for the, for the sake of time, like let's focus on how you and your co-authors here analyzed the way that people were writing out their thoughts in the two-dimensional space of a blackboard, how you like organized that as networks in order to formalize it. Yeah. And then the patterns that you found in those networks, because that I think gives us a place to anchor this piece back into the first half of this conversation and, you know, talk about the, you know, 
flights of the imagination and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, and so the methodological tactic we adopted here was to focus on inscriptions being put on a blackboard and to treat each new inscription, whether that's an equation or a diagram, as one node in a larger network of inscriptions. And so the vision we had was that when people start working on a problem, you know, they might just write out the statement of the problem. That's one note. And then they think, okay, maybe I'll draw a picture. Drawing a picture, always a good idea when you're trying to solve a problem. Okay, so they scribble a little diagram. That's another note. Then they can look back and forth between those. And that act of shifting your attention between those two nodes, that's the edge. And so what we could do is look at a dynamically updated network that was changing over time, that was gradually accumulating more and more nodes as people were introducing more and more inscriptions to their, you know, quote, ecosystem of thought. And... What this allowed us to do is to step back from whatever they're thinking, right, which we can't see inside their skulls. We don't have a cognitoscope that allows us to extract their thoughts. And instead to focus on, as I said before, the manual labor of mathematics and this wonderful dynamic structure that they're creating in front of them that seems to be really important because we all do it when we're, when we're doing math, right? We fill up whiteboards or blackboards or windows with inscriptions. We wanted to see, okay, what, what does that actually look like? What's the structure there? And so we were able for all of these different mathematical experts working on these problems to build for each of them a network representation of how they'd gone about solving the problem and then ask questions about the structure of those networks and the dynamics of people's attention as they're shifting their interaction from one diagram to a different equation to another word to another diagram within this network representation. And really the metaphor that I had in mind was of niche construction, right? The way that some organisms transform their worlds, spiders, building webs, animals building dams to completely transform the local terrain, and to think about mathematicians as people who engage in this kind of cognitive niche construction, changing the terrain of thought so that some insights become easier and others become more difficult. And looking at those notations as the mathematical equivalent of the spider web or the dam that's being created by the organism to change their niche. Well, I mean, certainly, <laughs> you know, it, it calls to mind that hilarious uh, fictional video, uh, or it's rather a uh, kind of a, a remix, a fictionalized remix of the old video of we gave all these different drugs to spiders. Oh, yeah. And here right, are the effects. Right. Totally, totally. Yeah. And like, there's, I'm sure many of the listeners of the podcast have seen that excellent Quanta article from a few years back about the web as an, a cognitive extension of the spider's own brain. And so I don't feel like you're making a huge analogical leap here at all. You know, well, you, you wouldn't, Michael. Well, <laughs> Friendly audience yeah. in the Complexity Podcast. Fair, fair enough. I mean, from, from orbit, everything looks really close. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, so from that aerial view, two interesting patterns emerge here that you figure in this paper. And uh, they're characterized by what I recognize actually as musical terms, uh, clusters, you know, which again, a shout out to the musicology and complexity working group. You know, you think about like tone clusters and just kind of mashing your hand on the keyboard. Everything's yeah. really close versus loops where things are a little bit more spread out. And that's sort of orthogonal, unless you're like Dmitry Tomoshko and you're actually mapping this stuff on, you know, a circular object. Right. 
But one network is really sort of dense and uh, one network has these sort of long linear arcs in it. And yet these are two different approaches to solving the same problem. And I'm curious what that says to you about the way that different people solve these problems. And then also how it might relate to a talk that I'll link to in the show notes that uh, Simon DeDeo gave last year on explosive proofs of mathematical truths, where he's talking about not the solving of an equation per se, but the formulation of a mathematical proof and how rather than it being this linear thing, you can actually represent them as networks and then you can knock pieces of that proof out and the whole proof still holds. Whether you think that viewing this solving of a mathematical problem in this way, whether certain approaches are more or less brittle to disruption yeah, in the way that Dedeo is talking about certain paths through a proof being more robust. Yeah. So I, I will say, first of all, the patterns that we saw weren't necessarily individual differences between people, but more so different patterns that we would find within the same episode or problem solving session. So a single person might produce a whole cluster of notations that were all tightly interlinked so that they would move fluidly from one to the next, from the diagram to an equation that might be describing something in the diagram to a English phrase that they'd written out. And that very same person might also produce these loops of inscription where there was, you know, a natural order that they would travel through. So If nothing else, I think that's a a nice quantitative demonstration that the way that we teach kids to do proofs in school, which is, you know, you start from the axioms and then you write out linearly from top to bottom how you want to work through it. That's not how mathematicians actually do math, right? It's a much more beautifully tangled process with different notations entering into different relationships with other notations within the larger, uh, you know, quote, ecosystem of the blackboard. So first point there. Second point is, yeah, I loved Simon's talk. And I actually went back and looked at our data to see if we found some of the same patterns of out and in edges in not the sort of like statements or deductions that people were making, but their use of inscriptions. And it wasn't a perfect match, but it looked very, very similar to what Simon was reporting. So in the same way that Simon found that you can get these robust proofs if you have this nicely unbalanced relationship in how different statements are relating to each other, we found a similar pattern, this is unpublished stuff, in the relationship between different inscriptions, which makes sense, right? Because these inscriptions are corresponding to some thought or statement or claim or inference, but it's nice to see that parallelism, if not like a strict isomorphism between how people are setting up these proofs as you know, abstract inferences, and then how they're actually structuring their world to arrive at those conclusions. Yeah. So to a point that you made just a moment ago, you know, you see examples of each in any given mathematician's approach to solving this. It strikes me that this goes back to the what we were saying a moment ago, or a few moments ago, about the tension between explore and exploit, right? Yeah. And that the sort of burstiness in the patterns that you're observing, you say in this, the precise amount of modularity likely reflects both the demands of the particular problem 
and the stochastic situated decisions. And I'm thinking, does this tell you something about the level of comfort that a mathematician has with a particular problem mm. or, you know, like the, you know, rather like, are they building the bridge very slowly and carefully and, or are they throwing these large ropes across the cavern? You know, at what point yeah. do you realize you're stuck and that you have to, you know, back out and, and take a completely different approach? Yeah. Again, it, there does seem like some kind of uh, family resemblance again to what, you know, the pattern we were seeing in the way that the jazz ensemble moves through its own kind of search space of totally. like interesting new musical possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess one way to say this is like, what does a healthy mathematical ecosystem look like? If we were engineering these things, how would we want optimally to set up this ecosystem of inscriptions so that the practicing mathematician would be most likely to arrive at, you know, really fulfilling insight. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. So one of my PhD students, Shadi Tabatabayan, is looking at these network structural and also these sort of more dynamic measures like burstiness that you mentioned, and seeing whether we can use those to predict when mathematicians are going to express an insight when they're going to have that, in some cases, a literal aha moment when, you know, in the videos, they're at the whiteboard, they're struggling, they're huffing and puffing. And then, you know, there's a beautiful pause and they said, ah, I got it. When do those show up in relationship to the dynamics of inscription that have been going on before? Can we predict when that's going to happen based on the, quote, healthiness of their notational niche that they've set up? You know, still working on the analyses, but what I suspect we'll find is something really similar to what we found with the jazz musicians, which is that we can find these system level indicators that the jazz musicians are about to move into a new regime of sound production and the mathematician or the mathematician brain body blackboard system is about to shift from a regime of confusion and frustration to one of fulfilling insight and realization and so there's definitely that really to us very explicit parallel between the you know micro level ruptures the critical transitions in the jazz performance and these slightly longer time scale rupture or critical transition in the mathematician I could be getting this completely wrong, but it strikes me that what you're talking about here has a relationship to kind of maybe parallel studies in the network dynamics of virality. Oh, yeah. You say here that the predictor with the largest relationship to burstiness and the only one that was statistically significant was modularity. More modular inscription activity with communities of densely interconnected inscriptions was associated with more bursty temporal dynamics. And, you know, this reminds me a lot of... I, cannot track the citation down to save my life, but I remember a few years ago seeing that uh, there was some research on what actually leads to a viral meme, and it had to do with like saturating a local network, and then at that point, it's sort of able to burst out, oh, cool. and the way that you're describing it could be somewhat analogous to the moment at which society at large has the idea, yeah. you know, where it, it's on its own little island you know mutating and then something clicks and suddenly it has percolated through everybody yeah so one difference here is that the network representation we have of mathematical activity is much more serial and much less parallel 
compared to a network representation of virality, where in a network representation of virality, each node is a person who may or may not have adopted a particular meme or become interested in a musical genre, if those still exist. While in the case of the mathematician, we're really tracking their attention as it shifts step by step from one inscription to the next. So that's, you know, perhaps a superficial difference, but it means that, you know, the mathematics of how we make sense of this is going to be slightly different. I will say that in some of my other work, and this was a paper that we were maybe going to talk about today, but I don't think we'll have time to talk about it today, uh, is I am really interested in how these critical transitions in abstract thought occur at the even larger scale of entire societies or linguistic communities. And there, this metaphor of virality is uh, absolutely germane. And so, you know, you mentioned George Lakoff at the top of the show, who's written and thought a lot about the metaphors that structure our thought and that get into our language. And so, for me, what happens with the jazz musician, where you have this critical transition from one sound world to the next, and what happens with the mathematician, where you have this rupture from confusion to insight, is in a certain sense, similar. When you wear the foggy glasses of complexity science, you know, <laughs> those two processes are really similar to what happens when an entire community goes from thinking and talking about, say, the nature of time or justice or right governance to an entirely different one. And to me, the interesting questions are like, what are the generic mechanisms that allow us to understand and predict when this kind of human social system is going to go over the top of the waterfall and end up in entirely new waters. Well, I mean, it would seem that that has, <laughs> when you fall over the edge, seems to have everything to do with uh, where your body is and what it's doing, right? And, yeah. and we, we've made it all the way back around in that regard. Well, okay, Tyler, this has been awesome. You've hinted at some of the direction that these inquiries are taking you. That paper in particular had a rather extensive list of how you might see this kind of thing evolving over time in ways that you didn't actually apply in the study. What are some of the greatest unanswered questions for you that we haven't already touched on so far in this conversation? We'll leave people hanging. <laughs> okay, so for me, I'm really excited about stretching this work from the millisecond to the 10 minute to the lifelong creative insight timescale. And so I'm working with this wonderful data set that's been collected by this fantastic historian of art that has documented basically everything that Pablo Picasso ever produced in his life. And, you know, Picasso is this person who's constantly reinvented himself over and over again, right? You know, he's all of a sudden he's painting everything blue and then pink and rose. And then all of a sudden he's doing, you know, cubism. And the question for me is, do we have similar dynamics on that scale of sort of lifelong creativity that you get on the micro millisecond scale of jazz improvisation? How are those similar? But maybe more importantly, how are those different? Like, what's the cool stuff that happens when you're talking about lifelong creativity that isn't at play on the short time scale? And one possibility is that when you're a jazz musician riffing in a smoky basement, the sort of larger cultural trends that are happening outside are changing so slowly that you're not necessarily impacted by that. While someone like Picasso, who's being created over an entire lifespan, 
is richly and productively entangled with other lives, other social trends, with world wars. And I think that entanglement of largely independent, but mutually interdependent systems is, you know, one of the really exciting places to look at these kinds of human critical transitions, right? These cascades from what one community is doing to what another community is doing to what's happening sort of broadly in the newspapers to what one person is doing in their studio and trying to get some kind of empirical quantitative nice analytic mathematical traction on that super broad messy web of influences is what's keeping me up at night these days <laughs> well if that's what it is then i wish you insomnia <laughs> sir <laughs> for, for the good of all of us this has been awesome thank you so much for taking hey, the time thanks for having me michael this is super fun thank you for listening Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.